Well, it's good to be here with you. You're not too far from Grand Rapids, and still it's a, a different world out here, close to Detroit. Um, I, uh, I retired from lecturing a year ago, and then Jeff phoned me. And uh, he is extremely persuasive. Uh, you could hear that with his introduction, you know. He makes you feel like you're God's gift to the world. And you, you just have to give another couple of lectures before you really retire from lecturing. Uh, because I wanted to spend full time writing. In any event, uh, just to tell you a little bit about my personal history, uh, it's 21 years ago that I was uh, invited to come to uh, Calvin Theological Seminary to teach preaching. And I had to teach the core courses and some electives. And so I gave the faculty several possibilities, preaching Christ from the parables, or preaching Jesus' parables, preaching Christ from the prophets, preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and so on. And uh, almost everybody ticked off preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So I had a core course, but I had no textbook, and I couldn't find a good textbook on that particular subject. So I decided to write my own textbook, which became Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And then uh, I thought, now, I should try to apply this to a particular book so as to give pastors a, a series of sermons on a book. Which one should, would I take? And I thought, well, let me go for Genesis. That is so basic to the entire scriptures. It is so basic for all of Christian theology that we had to have, I had to work on Genesis, preaching Christ from Genesis. But that was a major undertaking, and uh, I was 69, still teaching full-time, and that book was not getting done, so I decided to retire in order to finish that book. And uh, it was finished, I, I forget exactly when. And then the Lord gave me time to work on another book that I thought would be difficult for preachers, and that is the book of Ecclesiastes. And so that's what we're talking about now. It came out last year. Since it came out, I was looking for another tough book for you people out there in the trenches, and I started on Daniel, apocalyptic literature. And uh, it's almost finished, but it's kind of nice to get back to Ecclesiastes, this easy stuff, compared to these visions of Daniel. So that's what uh, I'm working on right now, and the uh, plan is, the Lord willing, I would like to write a book on preaching Christ from Leviticus, because especially the Lutherans have trouble with that, because of their law-gospel distinction, that there is no gospel in the Old Testament, some Lutherans say, not all. I had an invitation once to come to uh, Oslo, to speak to the Lutheran pastors there. They have a state Lutheran church. And the bishop had put two Old Testament texts on the lectionary. And they didn't know what to do with it. How do you preach Christ from an Old Testament text? Because Lutherans want to preach Christ, if anything. How do you do it? And so they invited me to come over. And that made me aware of this difficulty that Lutherans have with preaching Christ from law. And I thought, hey, that would be very interesting to tackle that next. In any event, uh, that's a bit of my, my life history. 
Uh, before we get into Ecclesiastes, I would like to open with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together here. We thank you for safety in our travels. We thank you for good health, clear minds. We pray that you will inspire us with your spirit, that we may understand your word. And will you give us a good time together and give us a good learning experience for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'd like to ask uh, how many of you have preached 15 sermons on Ecclesiastes? 15. There's a good man. 15 sermons. Through all of Ecclesiastes? Exactly 15? More than 15? Okay, we're going to have to talk about text selection with you. Uh, <laughs> Because one of the dangers in preaching wisdom literature is to just take a few verses and preach them as the intent of the teacher. Uh, and I'll be stressing that, that text selection is extremely important. If you, if you get off track there, if you, if you don't have the right text, the literary unit, then you may end up you know, not having a sermon that, that really conveys the intent of the author. How many of you have preached five sermons on Ecclesiastes? Whoa, three. There's another one, two, one, none. <laughs> Whoa, all right, I can see why you're here. Uh, and I'm sure that you're gonna be preaching sermons on Ecclesiastes after this. Uh, maybe you could hand out the first page, uh, and if you just put uh, however many by each table, they can uh, bring that around themselves. In, uh, the, the reason why I got onto this, uh, this topic, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes, I preached a series of five sermons on it in my first church, which was uh, close to Toronto, Ontario. And then when I got to my second charge, close to Vancouver, B.C., uh, I decided to recycle the sermons. You know, recycling, that's the in thing to do. I don't believe in, you know, uh, making sermons from scratch every time. Once you've put so much work into it, why not reuse it? You'll have to revise it, but reuse it in a different context. Anyway, I preached the, sermon, uh, the series of sermons of five there in, uh, in uh, Vancouver, and a retired pastor came up to me after the service, and he said, uh, said, I appreciated your sermon, but could a rabbi have preached that in a synagogue? And I had never heard that question before. Uh, I've heard it many times since. Could a rabbi have preached that sermon in a synagogue? If he could, I had preached an Old Testament sermon. And I think there are many uh, affinities, continuities between the rabbi and myself as a Christian pastor between the Old Testament and how we read the Old Testament, and yet to have a Christian sermon, we have to read the Old Testament in the context of the New. And so this is about 30, 40 years ago, and I started thinking about how do we preach Christ from a book like Ecclesiastes? And that's when I did my research then on the book Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Now, we're going to deal with Ecclesiastes here, and first of all, 
the value of preaching Ecclesiastes. If, the, if you have any questions, by the way, just raise your hand, okay? And I'll acknowledge you and, or comments. Ecclesiastes offers a unique perspective on human life, a perspective that is extremely relevant for the church today. Uh, a quotation from Ian Proben, I think he hit it kind of right on the head. Uh, I don't have the footnotes here, I have them in the book. Uh, but Ian Proben says, in focusing our attention on this life rather than the next, indeed this book con contributes to the correction of an all too frequent imbalance throughout the ages in Christian thinking, which has sometimes presented Christianity as if it were more a matter of waiting for something than a matter of living. I think that's an important consideration. Christians have sometimes waited for heaven, the kingdom of God to come, whereas we have to live the Christian life here and now. So Ecclesiastes is relevant, especially in our culture, because it tackles many of the temptations posed by today's secularism, materialism, consumerism, and hedonism. It tackles the very issues that the church is struggling with today and Christians. Leland Riken calls Ecclesiastes the most contemporary book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on an acquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It, it exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. Uh, usually at the uh, end of a book, you have to put in a text index and a sermon index. Uh, at, I'm sorry, a, su a subject index and a text index. And uh, I had to do that too, but I looked over the subject index and I thought that's not very helpful for preachers. And so I added, in addition to the subject index, a target uh, index targets for sermons, and topics for sermons. And the reason why I did it is this. In preaching, I think, only connects when there is a need out here. Whatever that need may be, think of a negative pole on a battery. The power is going to flow only when you have a positive going to a negative. And I've set this up for my students so that in the introduction, they introduce the need that is going to be filled by this sermon. And then they can hear the whole sermon as relevant for the church today. So anyway, here are some of the targets for sermons that you see in Ecclesiastes. You can't make a sermon on all of them from Ecclesiastes, then we look for the topics. But this is what Ecclesiastes deals with. Accidents, adversity, anger, anomalies of life, anxiety, brevity of life, bribery, changes in society, corrupt courts, corrupt rulers, cutthroat competition, death, disobedience, envy, fear of taking risks, foolish behavior, foolish rulers, foolish talk, forgetting God, futility of life, futility of pursuing pleasure, futility of pursuing riches, futility of words, futility of work, Greed, human autonomy, do anything of that ring true for today? Impatience, individualism, 
injustice, irreverent worship, lack of gain, lack of joy, lack of knowledge, lack of reverence, lack of trust, losing faith, love of money, materialism, meaning of life, oppression, poverty, pride, rich people, secularism, sin, sinner, suffering, super-righteous, temptations, uncertainties, wickedness. All of these issues were at work in the time that Ecclesiastes was, read, was written. And I think it very much looks like the 20th, 21st century in North America. Then I have a section on topics for sermons. Contentment, cooperating together, dealing with suffering, death, dependence on God, enjoying life, enjoying marriage, enjoying work, entrepreneurship, fearing God, giving to the poor, God's decree, God's judgment, God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's transcendence, God's work a mystery, God the creator, God the giver, justice, keeping God's commandments, the limitations of wisdom, living with paradoxes, living with uncertainties, the meaning of life, money, wealth, patience, pleasure, politics, remembering your creator, risk-taking, trusting God, using wisdom, work, worshiping God, young people. A lot of sermons there in the book of Ecclesiastes, or at least topics for sermons. Uh, we'll see later that basically there are 15 texts in Ecclesiastes, that is, large literary units. Now, it is possible to, to preach a smaller unit, as long as you recognize the larger unit, of course. The nature of wisdom literature. I think the best description has been given by Elizabeth Achtemeyer. Wisdom is the result of practical experience and the careful observation of both the natural and the human worlds. Out of all of the chaos of experience, wisdom finds customary orders in the world, ways in which human beings and natural phenomena ordinarily behave. Its aim then is to teach men and women these orders so that they may know how to act in harmony with the world around them. This sort of reminds me of when I preached my first sermon on Proverbs in my first church, and I preached on the text, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Any of you preached on that one? Oh, that's interesting. Anyway, I thought, I think it must have been for Mother's Day or Father's Day. Anyway, I preached in such a way that uh, this is God's promise. If you train up a child in the way he should go, then when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's God's promise to you. And here I had a doctorate in biblical hermeneutics and homiletics, and I misunderstood the text. And so I had people come up later and they said, well, our son has strayed from the church. Did we fail him? You see, I had put a guilt trip on some people. And that, of course, was not necessarily my idea, but that's what happened. I did not realize that what you have in Proverbs, in wisdom literature, is not a promise of God that it will always be that way. But it's what usually happens. It's what you observe. Page two. <coughs> 
the gophers have left me. There are the helpers, people with the red shirts. I have given you quite a detailed outline so that you wouldn't have to write too much. Uh, so here and there I'll depart from the outline and say a few other things. If you think it's worthwhile, you could write that down. Uh, I consider using PowerPoint, but then I've seen people busy writing and they don't have time to think and discuss matters. So uh, I'll rather quickly go through some of this introductory material. You can uh, read more details about that in this book, uh, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. Uh, one of the questions to ask, of course, who is the author or who are the authors? Now, traditionally, you may know that biblical scholars identified King Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes. Now, Luther already questioned that uh, identification. Notice in Proverbs 1, verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And even not all of those Proverbs were written by Solomon. Uh, Proverbs of Agur are in there. Uh, king Lamelia's mother. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, by contrast, says, The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the teacher seems to avoid the name Solomon. Uh, someone uh, gave a somewhat negative review on this book, and he said, well, Gradanus doesn't believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Uh, he says, when you read the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that could only have been Solomon. But this reviewer forgot one thing. It could also have been another person, the teacher, who later used King Solomon, the figure of King Solomon, to present his message. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what is going on, and I'll explain more of that later. But today a consensus is emerging for a single author, the, the teacher, an inspired author, the teacher, with an editor who wrote the epilogue, 12a to 14, or 12:9 to 14, and perhaps the prologue, 1 verse 1 and or 1 verse 1 to 2. Now let me mention some problems in, uh, in understanding Ecclesiastes, and that has to do with the presuppositions of the commentaries that you'll be reading. We all, of course, have our presuppositions, and so do the commentaries. I'll give you three examples. The first is the issue whether the final editor critically evaluates and undermines the message of the teacher. And one person, surprising to me, who teaches that is Tremper Longman III, who was uh, a teacher at Westminster Seminary, so a rather conservative person. Longman argues that a so-called frame narrator critically evaluates the teachings of the teacher in Ecclesiastes 12. Quote, in essence, he says to his son, Coalette's thinking, that is the teacher's thinking, is dangerous material. Be careful. What are some problems that you see with that particular position? Maybe you should look in your Bibles a minute at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12. I take it you all brought a Bible? Can't do without the Bible. 
Problems? Anyone? From a purely practical point of view, and it's probably not what you think, but you have, you have one verse undermining an entire book. It seems rather backward in, in the way that God would constitute Scripture. I, I know that's not a theological or doctrinal argument, or even a textual critical argument, but. It's a very excellent argument, though. I, I think that's right on. Why in the world would anyone who disagrees with the teacher's teaching copy 11 chapters and then in the end say, well, it's dangerous material? I, I think uh, it, it just boggles the mind that anyone would do that. Any others? Okay. All right, it calls into question whether anything else in has been edited uh, of the teacher's work. Right, that could well be too, okay. How about the doctrine of inspiration? That sort of makes that a, for a, a difficulty if an editor later can undermine an inspired teacher. But let's look a minute at uh, 12 verse 11 and 12. We begin at 11. And I'm reading from the NRSV. If you have the NIV or whatever, that is fine. Uh, we'll see some differences later. But in my NRSV, it says, The sayings of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings um, that are given by one shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Now, Anything beyond what? That is the sayings of the wise. Go back a minute to verse 9. Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge and so on. So it's the teacher that is included with the one who had these wise sayings. And so what, uh, how I read this passage is, of anything Beyond these wise sayings, the traditional ones and the ones of these teacher, beware. So he is not critiquing at all uh, the teacher's interpretation. Well, uh, Jerry Shepard, I don't know if you, some, of, some of you know him. Uh, I hate to say it in this company, but he is a Baptist uh, teaching at uh, North American Baptist Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta. He's a student, or at least he is a follower of Longman, and he compares preaching the wisdom of the teacher to preaching the speeches of the friends of Job. He writes, the long autobiographical speech of Coelet in Ecclesiastes is not the word of God, but is contained in a book that is God's word. Wow, do you have any problems with that? <laughs> You have some problems. What are the problems? Inspiration. Inspiration again, yes. Uh, yeah. How would one know which portions are trustworthy and which aren't? Exactly. Okay, good. And even if you take the frame narrative, the teacher periodically says, fear God. You know, he doesn't only ever say life is vain. Right. He has those periodic moments where he gets it right. Okay. Okay, we'll get, we'll get to that uh, soon, but yeah, you're right. 
uh, th there are certainly uh, areas where he's not talking at all like the, like the friends of Job. And moreover, you cannot take 11 chapters of the teacher that are now in the Bible and compare them with these relatively small speeches of the friends of Job, which have to be understood in that context. Okay, that was the first example of a, a, a problem because of the presuppositions of certain commentators. A second uh, presupposition is from Xiu. Uh, he teaches at Princeton Seminary. Uh, he says the teacher at a certain point employs the rhetoric of subversion of traditional wisdom. In other words, what he and many other commentators are saying is that the teacher takes traditional wisdom and he deconstructs it. He doesn't like it. He contradicts it. Any problems there? Same kind of thing that we talked about earlier, the doctrine of inspiration, I think, would, would get in, in a bind there. Um, another question, of course, is how then do you preach traditional wisdom? You have traditional wisdom here in Proverbs, and he quotes some here in Ecclesiastes, and he seeks to undermine it. Major problems for preaching. Uh, I ran across a Jewish author, Michael Fox, who counters the teacher does not oppose or present antitheses to the doctrines of traditional wisdom. It's not even clear that he recognizes a difference. He is not using traditional wisdom against itself. He is just using it. And I think that is right on. So along with most commentators, I assume, and this is my presupposition then, that the teacher and his editor speak with one voice. The teacher is an inspired apologist who moves in and out of a horizontal secular worldview, I'll explain that later, in order to deconstruct it from within over and over, uh, 38 times Hebel, that is vanity. The date of composition. I quote here Edward Young, who is known as a very conservative uh, Old Testament scholar, 50 years ago. That would really make him conservative now. Uh, he writes, Solomonic authorship is not widely held and is rejected by most Orthodox Protestant scholars. The background of the book does not fit the age of Solomon. It was a time of misery and vanity. The splendor of Solomon's age was gone. A time of death had begun for Israel. Injustice and violence were present. There was heathen tyranny. Death was preferred to life. One man, man ruled over other men to their hurt. You see how, how different that is from the area of Solomon, the height of Israel's empire. Wybray also says the book was written many centuries after Solomon, probably in the third century BC. The main reasons for this dating are three, the character of the Hebrew in which it is written, its mood and style of argument, and its place in the history of thought. Each of these considerations would be sufficient in itself to prove that it is one of the latest compositions in the Old Testament. Page three. The Gophers will hand out page three. Um, you see why this is important in terms of the historical background. 
if you see the book of Ecclesiastes addressing a negative pole, say, in the third century B.C., when Israel had drifted away from God, when all kinds of pagan ideas came into the country, then it speaks much more powerfully than if this was the age of Solomon. It just does not fit. And so uh, I, I don't know how important it is to identify a certain author, uh, but in any event, this makes for a good fit around the third century BC. And I'll explain that in, on page uh, three. The original recipients. In 538 BC, a remnant of Israel returned from exile in Babylon. And gradually, Israel drifted away from Yahweh, the God of their fathers. They also drifted away from their agricultural society, where each family had a plot of the inheritance, and that stayed in the family. And if they had to sell it for any reason, they would get it back in the year of Jubilee. That no longer obtained. They were caught up in a materialistic culture. Sio writes, they were preoccupied with all sorts of social and economic issues. The vote, uh, that's a misspelling. What do I want there? The volatility. volatility, yeah, that is right. The volatility, sorry. The volatility of the economy, the possibility of wealth, inheritance, social status, the fragility of life, and the ever-present shadow of death. And Roger Wybray adds, the book was probably written when Palestine was ruled from Egypt by the Ptolemaic dynasty. It was a period of intense economic development, expansion of international trade. Get that, expansion of international trade. Compare that to our global world today. Opportunities for great fortunes to be made by entrepreneurs. True today as well. Money as a means of exchange assumed an, an importance which it had never had before. These developments help to explain Kohelet's preoccupation with money and profit. Note the leading question of economic gain in 1 verse 3. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? The word for gain in Hebrew is yetron. And yetron is really profit. It's what is left over after you subtract the expenses from the sales price. So you have a sales price and you have certain expenses. What's left over? That's yetron. That's the gain you have, the profit you have. He uses that word nine times. Uh, you notice in chapter 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, and 10. So spread throughout the book the issue of profit, gain. So that's a materialistic culture that he was addressing. And secondly, a secular culture. Under the influence of Greek philosophical ideas, Epicureanism, their worldview tended to become secular, leaving God out of the picture. Does that sound familiar? Don't we at the, at the universities today, at the public universities, try to explain this world in terms of itself? At least we can't speak about God. So that's the secular culture. Now this is where that phrase, under the sun, becomes important. Only the teacher uses this expression in the Old Testament. He could have used under heaven, as he does in 
or on earth, as he does in 5.2.8.16. But he uses under the sun 29 times. Look for a moment at uh, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 3 and 9. I need someone with a good voice from the back to read those. Do we, yes? 1, 3, and 9, please. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So the question is, what does he mean by that phrase, under the sun? As I said, he could have used under heaven or on earth, but he uses under the sun. I think for that you have to go back to the Old Testament and in the context of the three-story universe where you have heaven, oops, and the, the earth, and then what is below the earth. Now in heaven you have God, the sun, stars, and so on. So under the sun is a horizontal worldview, a worldview that does not take God into account. Uh, Henry was very helpful for me on this one. He writes, the teacher addresses people whose view is bounded by the horizons of this world. He meets them on their ground and proceeds to convict them of its inherent vanity. This is further borne out by his characteristic expression, under the sun. The teacher's purpose then was to show these readers the deficiency of this secular worldview. From this perspective, he proclaims, all is vanity. The inclusio, the bookends of, uh, the, uh, of the teacher's teaching, and he uses the word Habel 38 times. I mentioned there the inclusio, uh, that means like an envelope figure. Uh, it begins one way, it ends the same way. Um, another person from the back would like to read perhaps for us the two verses mentioned. One verse two, so from the, in the beginning you read what? Who's volunteering? Yes? Okay, he's reading from the NIV, which translates the word Habel as meaningless. We'll get back to the meaning of Habel in a minute. Uh, I need somebody else to read 12, verse 8. Not that you did not do well. You, you may read 12, 8 as well. Okay, see, that's an inclusio. And that's the major perspective that he has, that everything in life, under the sun, without taking God into account, is meaningless or is vanity. Now there are specific problems in preaching Ecclesiastes, and I want to mention five. And the first is the meaning of this word Habel. Habel you find this back in the first name, Abel. He was killed by Cain, Abel. Abel means basically vapor. 
or breath. Okay, so it's a metaphor. And that gets difficult to translate. So the NIV has meaningless. My particular version, NRSV, has vanity. When you think of breath vapor, what do you think is the meaning of Hebel? It can be a great variety. There's not one good answer. Okay, that's the fleetingness or the transitoriness of life. That's a good one. Without substance, good. Breath, look at that on a, on a winter morning. Well, that's also here today, gone tomorrow. You breathe it out and it's gone. Anything else? So the inability to put your hands around it and hold it to define it. Okay, good. Anything else? We'll take uh, the next page. I have all the answers on the next page. That's why I didn't want you to have it ahead of time. I know some of you would sneak a look at the next page and then you'd not even be thinking. Okay, on page uh, four, I explain then the meaning of Hebel, at least insofar as uh, the translators uh, of the Bible use different words. The Anchor Bible translates it literally. It uses the word vapor. That's interesting. Now it leaves it up to the lay people and the pastors to figure out for themselves uh, how to apply this metaphor. The King James Version, of course, had vanity. And the NRSV followed it because, well, it's part of the English language. The NIV, uh, as we heard, uh, has meaningless. Uh, I don't think that's a very good choice. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, commentators suggest, notice, futility. I hadn't heard that yet. Absurd. Enigma. Incomprehensible. I heard that here. You can't get your hands around it or your mind around it. Unsubstantial, I heard over here. Transitory, fleeting, I heard over there. So you came up with some of these ideas that commentators uh, suggest this is the meaning of the word. If you look a moment in Ecclesiastes 11, verse 10, I'd like to show you that the NIV translation, and even in the TNIV, which uh, I have consulted, and the new NIV, they still use meaningless. I had hoped that they would change that. Uh, someone with the... NIV. Could you read uh, verse 10, uh, 11 verse 10? Any volunteers? Yes? Go ahead. So then, banish anxiety from your heart, cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Youth and vigor, or youth and the dawn of life, are meaningless. Now look at verse 9. Rejoice, young man while you are young, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Does it follow to say then, for youth and the dawn of life are meaningless? That just doesn't fit. I think a better word would be what you suggested. It's fleeting, it's transitory. It's here today, gone tomorrow. So you see, the issue with a metaphor is, although it's neat when you have the same English word, 
in a translation so that you know the word Hebel is being used, you have to translate it, understand it in terms of the context in which it is used. And that could be different things. In this case, at, at 11.10, I would say uh, it, it means something like it's transitory, it's, it's fleeting. Okay, that's uh, the problem of the, the meaning of Hebel. Uh, the second problem is the juxtapositions. Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult books, biblical books to interpret. Witness the different assumptions, approaches, and results of modern commentators. One of the main problems for interpreters is that the teacher swings back and forth between two poles. His pessimistic, all is vanity, and his optimistic, it's fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all your toil. Now, scholars have given this polarity various names, diatribe, dialogical, dialectical, polar structure, and juxtaposition. Uh, many argue that the teacher contradicts himself. Now, that's not a major problem. You often find contradictions in wisdom literature. Um, for example, in, in the book of Proverbs, uh, there's a text about, oops, it just escapes me now. Answer a fool according to his folly. Next verse, do not answer a fool according to his folly. You see how wisdom can contradict itself. Why? Because life is complex. It's not all of one, uh, of one piece. And so there are these contradictions in wisdom literature because life is complex. So I'm not concerned about contradictions in, uh, in the teacher's presentation. As I see it, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is woven together of two kinds of strands. Uh, you have the horizontal strands, which is this here, life under the sun, and this came up a little earlier already. And this is where the teacher constantly says vanity. Vanity or meaningless or fleeting, whatever. And then you have the vertical strands where he re reminds us of God. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And you see how it's like a cloth. You have the horizontal strands and then the vertical strands that tie the book together as a whole. So the vertical strands open up the perspective to the reality of God and the pessimistic tones of life under the sun recede into the background. There's nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. I've given you the textual references there. Seven times he mentions that we are to enjoy life. Seven is the number of perfection, of completeness. God created the world in seven days, and he's got it exactly seven times in this book. A third difficulty for preachers, selecting a proper preaching text. Yes, question? Uh, can I ask a question about that? How do you discern, how do you discern definitively when you're dealing with a horizontal strand that represents life as it is, and a, a, did I say horizontal, a vertical strand that represents life as it is? And a horizontal strand that represents life in this plane from the from the secular perspective. Because, for example, I have an annihilationist in my church who argues from chapter three that all souls that are not redeemed go to the earth just like animal souls. Uh -huh. How do you tell? 
Right. The question then is how can you tell whether you're dealing with a horizontal or a vertical strand when you have a text? Uh, it's, it's really a little more difficult than that in that you have, you have to have as a text a literary unit. Am I standing in the wrong spot? Um, you have to have a literary unit. So the literary unit could have both this and this. It could have only this, or it could have only this, the secular perspective. And we'll get back to this later. When you have a horizontal and a vertical unit in one text, which is going to be your theme? How do you make a, one theme of, of two perspectives in a text? So we'll deal with that a little more when we come to text selection. That's the, the next point, in fact. But for now, I would uh, like to focus on uh, the selecting the preaching text and the importance that you take a literary unit. That is so important, I mentioned already, if you, if you don't get that right, you're going to have an awful time getting the sermon right. You have to have a literary unit. Now, Towner writes, it's more difficult to identify most of the individual pericopes of Ecclesiastes than in any other book of the Hebrew Bible, except perhaps the book of Proverbs. And I found that to be very true. I'm working on Daniel now, and so easy. Daniel is almost by chapter, at least the first seven chapters. That's a, this is one, one unit, and this is the other, and so on. Ecclesiastes is much different. Uh, there is agreement among commentators that Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 to 11 is a unit, and 1, verse 12 to 2:26 are literary units. Disagreements on the rest. Addison Wright has been most helpful, I think. He writes, Ecclesiastes is a, is a difficult book in that it can be made to say many different things depending on how one divides the material into sections. I think that is very important to, to catch. You can make the book say different things depending on how you divide the material into sections. Consequently, if the author has indicated in any way how he divided the material, those indications will be of the utmost importance for valid exegesis. Uh, maybe the Gophers could start handing out page five because I've given rights uh, final results there, but he bases his analysis on the author's simple technique of concluding related sections with the same word or phrase. He says, the body of the book consists of two halves, 1 verse 12 to 6 verse 9, and 6 verse 10 through 11 verse 6. Now it's interesting that in the Masoretic text, after Nine verse, uh, 6 verse 9, it says half. So the Masoretes already realized that the book consists of two halves, and at 6, 9, they reached the, first, the end of the first half. Now Wright goes on to say, in the first half, Kohelet examines what is good for man to do in six sections, each ending with all is vanity and a striving after wind, especially the striving after wind. A line that, interestingly, never again occurs in the book after 6.9. In the second half, 6.10 through 11.6, the teacher seeks to answer two questions. Who knows what is good for humans and who knows the future? 
The first question is explored in four sections, 7-1 through 8-17, each ending with not find out, and the last one with a triple, no one can find out. The second question is explored in four sections, each ending with do you know, and the last one with a triple, you do not know. Now, if you have a look at page five, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, th I find that extremely interesting how intricately the book of Ecclesiastes had been put together. You notice on the right side, the right column, that in the first half you have 111 verses. In the second half, you also have 111 verses. In moving to the left, that column, you have the beginning, a poem, and an introduction, 18 verses. Then the body of the first half is 93 verses. The second half, the body, is also 93 verses, and it has 18 verses with a poem on youth and old age and the epilogue. So they're developed in a parallel fashion. Uh, now for a little more detail, uh, move all the way to the left. Uh, you have the title, The Poem on Toil, Coalette's Investigation of Life, a double introduction. And then uh, you have the sections, six sections that end with striving after wind. Uh, very similar to uh, Habel uh, as, as vapor, you can't grab it. Breath, you can't grab it, striving after wind. Uh, one, study of pleasure-seeking, vanity. Study of wisdom and folly, striving after wind. Study of fruits of toil. Uh, one has to leave them to another. Uh, that's vanity. One cannot hit on the right time to act. That's also striving after wind. The problem of a second one, striving after wind. We'll look at that text later. Um, one can lose all that one accumulates, striving after wind. And then he gets, that's at the half. In the second half, you have Coalette's conclusions. And here he has the two questions. Uh, one cannot find out what is good, and one cannot find out what comes after him. And then A, that deals with that first question. One cannot find out what is good for him. There are four sections there. Each section ends with not find out. Uh, on the day of prosperity and adversity, not find out. On justice and wickedness, not find out. Women and fallacy, folly, not find out. On the, the wise one and the king, three times, not find out. And then he comes to that second question. We don't know what will come after us. Uh, one doesn't know his time. One doesn't know what will be. That's the second one. The third section, one doesn't know what evil will come. And then finally, the fourth section, one does not that should be know what good will come. I think uh, one does, yeah, that should be not. That's a typo. What good will come. Three times. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. Now, when I saw this, and I checked it out, and it, it works. Uh, you'd have to, you may have to go back to the Hebrew to see it exactly. But a structure like this cannot be a coincidence. Uh, it must be deliberate. It must be intended. So what the author, the teacher, is, is trying to do is to show us these are the parameters of the literary units. 
and there are 15 of them. And so I'm suggesting that we use each of these 15 units. Well, I've, I've tinkered a little bit with Wright's uh, program you may catch me at, but uh, I, I use them as the text. Some of them are quite long and will be quite a challenge. Page six, please. Any questions on this? Yes, a question. Um, I know this is hypothetical, but if you were to do a series on Ecclesiastes, how many sermons would you do? Uh, that's my last page of the lectures, and <laughs> all of you may not be there. Uh, so let me give you a provisional answer. Um, John Calvin, he preached through the book of Deuteronomy. I think he took two or three years. I don't think people will sit still for that nowadays. I think it is possible to do a series of 15 and really get people into it, especially if it's a kind of a, a Bible study thing, then, then I think it's feasible. In church, I don't think I would do it uh, 15 in a row. I think people want variety. So I, I would do, say, on the first half of the book, seven sermons, and then go to something else, go to the Gospels, the New Testament letters, whatever, and a year later, or maybe three, a few months later, come back and do eight sermons on the second half. Or you can split it into three times five. Uh, whatever you decide, I think usually it'll work out pretty good. But when you see the last page, which is basically my, uh, the outline of the book, uh, you will see that you can go in various directions with it. Okay, uh, on page six, uh, uh, the fourth problem for preachers is formulating a single theme, and I touched on that a bit earlier in response to the question here. Uh, modern sermons require a single theme for the sake of their unity and movement. Fred Craddock has made very clear that you need a single theme for movement in the sermon. Otherwise, he says it's like a flood. Think of the Mississippi now, flooding the fields. There's not much movement in, in that stuff covering the fields. But when the Mississippi is within the levees, then there's movement. And the same is true for a sermon. If your sermon goes all over, there's no movement. But when you confine it, then you have unity and movement. So that's why the single theme is important. But the teacher frequently seeks to make his point in stereo sound by juxtaposing a negative pole with a positive one or presenting two positive poles, such as in chapter 12, uh, rejoice while you're young and remember your creator in the days of your youth. So when the preaching text contains two messages, how do you formulate a single theme that does justice to both? Any ideas how you can do that? Well, let me tell you what I tell my students. Um, I'm, I'm suggesting that when you, when you have two themes, then you ask yourself, which is the dominant theme? And we'll be going through several passages uh, during the next two days. 
So you ask yourself, here are two themes, A and B. Which is the dominant? Suppose B is the dominant, then you have B uh, as your theme and A as a sub-theme. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is if, if they're equal, then you're looking for a theme that overarches both of them so that you have the theme here, C, that's of your own formulation, and then you have A, that would be your first point, and that would be your second point. So if you have two themes, then uh, there are ways to reduce that. You don't want to preach two themes. You have to reduce that to a single one somehow. And then the fifth issue, and that's probably why you came uh, to this conference, the fifth difficulty is preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes contains no promise of the coming Messiah, and it has only two possible types of Christ. So how would one preach Christ? And the early church, the church fathers, adopted allegorical interpretation. That was the way to interpret then. They had learned that from the Greeks, and so they followed that in preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. Uh, so I want to check how good you are at allegorical interpretation, okay? I've given you a few examples here. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. There is nothing better than to eat and drink. How would you preach Christ using allegorical interpretation? That's the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, exactly. They said the Eucharist. That's the Eucharist. Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two are better than one. How would you preach Christ from this? Two? No, that's not how they did it. God and man. Two are better than one. Boy, you guys are good at this. The, the, the church fathers didn't even think of these. <laughs> Two are better than one. Well, somehow they said the one is Jesus. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4.10, one will lift the other. Now that should be easy. Christ lifts up his brother. Ecclesiastes 4.12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Trinity, exactly. Boy, you guys are good. Uh, we'll have to read this one a minute. I need a good voice from the back. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 14 to 15. Okay. Okay, there was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great sites or siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembers that poor man. Good, thank you. Allegorical interpretation. Now, before we've had only metaphor to Christ. Now you have three. So this gets into real allegorical interpretation. You have a little city. You have a great king that besieged it. And you have a poor, wise man who delivered it. What's the little city? I'm sorry, I didn't hear right. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. These are the early church fathers. Is it, is it humanity or 
No. No. Hey, you're onto something. A little city. The, 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 there, you're close with Jerusalem, but now it's the church fathers, and Jerusalem now has become the church in the New Testament age, right? So the little city is the church, as was said rightly here. And then a great king besieged it. You had the answer over here. The devil. A poor wise man delivered it. Christ. You see, now that's allegorical interpretation. Uh, What's wrong with it? Why don't we use allegorical interpretation today? Because it betrays the author's intent. Okay, that's an excellent one. Yes. It betrays the author's intent. Yes, uh, Jeff. It makes the interpreter the Okay. So that's similar to uh, we have to preach what was intended by the author and not what we want it to say. And so that's very similar. You're getting at it from a different angle. Yes? There's always allegorical elements that you can't, you just can't make work. I mean, like in this one, it said the poor wise man delivered it, and no one remembered him. Is that what it said? So, I mean, in an allegory, you just can't, you can't make it all fit. Okay, that's uh, one that I had not thought of, but uh, I think some of them would make it fit. <laughs> Somehow. That one on the Trinity, by the way, if you use Matthew Henry's commentary, uh, he has, uh, you know, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. He has that for a wedding service, the bride, the groom, and Jesus. Now that cord is not quickly broken. I'm saying, hey, Matthew Henry, that's allegorical interpretation. It's a no-no. It's uh, reading things into the text. It's forcing the text into a certain direction. It's asegesis, basically, and we don't want to be guilty of asegesis. Also, it's very arbitrary, allegorical interpretation. You go one way, that person goes another way. You check the church fathers, you know, they were not agreed on, uh, on how to identify these different uh, components in, in a text. So uh, I would uh, steer clear of allegorical interpretation. What then? Uh, let me give you a definition of preaching Christ. The common definition is to preach the person and or work of Christ. Since the work of Christ is frequently restricted to his miracles and the atonement, I broadened the definition of preaching Christ by adding the category of the teaching of Christ. Uh, I especially had uh, Old Testament wisdom in mind when I did that in the book Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Uh, now, in a way, the teaching of Christ is the work of Christ, part of the work of Christ. Uh, but because of uh, problems with fundamentalism and liberalism in the early 19th century, I think uh, the teaching of Christ dropped out. Fundamentalists focused on the person of Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and his work, the work of atonement. And the teaching got sort of lost. I wanted to show you here that the importance of the teaching of Christ. Jesus himself said, if you continue in my word, that is my teaching, you are truly my disciples. He said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Again, his teaching. John writes, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
So I made the definition of preaching Christ, uh, preaching sermons which authentically integrate the message of the text. So that's first, the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person, work, and or teaching of Jesus as revealed in the New Testament. Page seven, please. Any questions so far? So you understand the definition. So we're looking to move from the message of the text, the theme that we've discovered, to Jesus in the New Testament, either his person, his work, or his teaching. And with wisdom literature, often it will be his teaching. In uh, doing the book on uh, preaching Christ from Genesis, I, I, I used uh, 23 Genesis narratives, and I sketched the plot line of all these narratives. Uh, you know, a plot line moves from, from a beginning plot line starts here. Every story has a beginning and an ending, right? Everybody knows that. It begins here with a certain setting. Uh, there's a conflict at this point. It reaches a climax, and then it starts to resolve itself, and there's the outcome and sometimes the conclusion. Uh, I borrowed this one from uh, Tremper Longman and some others. Now, I discovered after I did 23 of those that you can do the whole of Scripture as a plot line. The Bible presents one continuous, progressive, redemptive history centered in Christ and ending at Christ's return. Setting is Genesis 1, creation of the earth. Preliminary incident, Genesis 2, paradise on earth. Occasioning incident, the fall, Genesis 3. And then notice how the tension mounts, Genesis 3, sin. Adam and Eve expelled by God. Genesis 4, murder. Uh, Cain, cursed by God. Genesis 6 to 9, violence, the flood sent by God. Genesis 11, Babel, scattered by God. And then comes the turn in the narrative. God calls Abram. Old Testament, God calls Israel. Gospels, God sends Jesus. Letters, Jesus sends his church to the nations. Revelation, Jesus will come again. Outcome, Revelation 22, paradise restored on earth. You see how it started, creation of the earth, and in the end, paradise will be restored on earth. I was uh, doing work in England on preaching Christ from the Old Testament I was working in St. John's College in Nottingham uh, and Sheffield. And uh, in that setting, I was reading also Spurgeon. And what really spoke to me was his lectures to his students. He wrote, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London, and that's indeed true. There are sometimes are many or several roads that you can choose from. So from every text of Scripture, there is a road to Christ. 
And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? I have never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if ever I do find one, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. Uh, living in England, that image really spoke to me. There are ways to the center, to Christ. Uh, unfortunately, Spurgeon, uh, to get over hedge and ditch to get to his master, often used, sometimes used allegorical interpretation, uh, which is what we have eliminated. But it raised the question for me, uh, what are the ways in which we can move to Christ in the New Testament? And so I, I, I studied uh, both the New Testament and church history and what, uh, what theologians have done with this. And I came to the conclusion that there are seven legitimate ways to Christ. And the first is redemptive historical progression. Redemptive historical progression enables one to connect the dots that run from the periphery of the Old Testament to the center of God's revelation in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And now I've placed redemptive historical progression first because that is the foundational, the basic way of moving. Let me uh, explain this to you. When you have, th this is the picture I have in mind and it's also in, in one or two of my books. Uh, the picture of redemptive history In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. You have humanity as a whole represented in Adam and Eve. It narrows down to Israel among the nations. It narrows down still further to a remnant that, that returns. At the midpoint of Should I use the other mic, perhaps? What do you think? point we have Christ. Then that starts out again with a little growth, the disciples. It, it's on. We'll see if that's any better. Now I have only one hand. That's a major handicap. Okay, so now we start to move out again. Jesus appoints disciples. They go out. The church and the church is sent to the nations. You notice that this is almost like a chiastic structure. You have a remnant, the disciples, Israel, the church, humanity as a whole, the nations. And then the creation at the end becomes a new creation with the second coming of Christ. So this is redemptive historical progression. It's always moving forward. So you take a text from here at this point. God makes a promise to Abraham uh, in your seed, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's God's promise. And we move from there to the New Testament where Jesus sends his disciples 
to all the nations. So there you find the fulfillment. So the promise is made in a, at a certain point in redemptive history, and it's fulfilled at this point. Um, at the time of Israel, there was David, the king. David is a type of Christ. So here you have a type who prefigures the antitype Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, the son of David, 3 times 14, the antitype. You find uh, analogy uh, at some point here, Ecclesiastes has certain teachings. Now, because Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, he confirms that teaching. Then you can move from here by way of the teaching, by way of analogy. Sometimes Jesus says something different from, or the New Testament, than what Ecclesiastes did. And then you move by the way of contrast. So analogies and contrast... Well, that just about covers the seven ways. I haven't mentioned uh, the uh, New Testament references. That's coming yet. And I haven't mentioned um, longitudinal themes. We'll talk about that in a minute. As long as you see for at this point that uh, the importance of redemptive historical progression, that that is foundational. So I wrote here... Uh, Redemptive history progresses from its earliest beginnings after the fall into sin, through God's dealings with Israel to the incarnation of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and finally to his second coming. Therefore, Christian preachers must understand an Old Testament passage in the light of this progression in redemptive history. For example, the teacher doesn't know about the resurrection from the dead. Although he hints that there may be a final judgment, his main assumption is the finality of death. But this assumption changes drastically as redemptive history moves forward to the resurrection of Jesus. Death is not the end. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So this progression in redemptive history casts the teacher's messages in a whole new light. Uh, the next page, please. I, I have another seven minutes. Uh, that's a complete period of time. Uh, moreover, it'll get me to a natural break. I love you, Jeff, but uh, I, I'm the boss here. <laughs> I, I'd like to finish uh, the next two pages before the break so that we keep these ways to Christ together and then we can start with, uh, uh, with an actual text uh, after the break. Okay, the next uh, one then on top of page 8 is promise fulfillment. The Old Testament contains many promises of the coming Messiah. From such a promise, one can move directly to its fulfillment in the first or second coming of Jesus. Notice the two, the two comings of Jesus. But Ecclesiastes contains no messianic promises. Then typology, Old Testament redemptive events, persons or institutions can function as types 
which foreshadow the great antitype, the person and or work of, of Jesus Christ. Two possible types in Ecclesiastes, the figure of Solomon, Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and the one shepherd of 12, 11. We'll talk about that right after the break. Analogy. Analogy looks for parallels between the goal, the purpose of the teacher, and the goal or purpose of Jesus, or between the teachings of the Old Testament teacher and the teachings of Jesus. These analogies exist because Jesus was the supreme wise teacher. Paul claims that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that Jesus is the wisdom from God. And Jesus himself claimed to be greater than Solomon, and taught primarily in the wisdom forms of proverbs and parables. They're called mashal in Hebrew. Ben Witherington has made this point by even conservative estimates, at least 70% of the Jesus tradition is in the form of some sort of wisdom utterance, such as an aphorism, a riddle, or a parable. Therefore, we can look for analogies between the teachings of the teacher and those of Jesus. For example, the teacher warns against working hard to obtain wealth in Ecclesiastes 2. Jesus warns similarly, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus also tells the parable of the rich fool who died leaving all his wealth behind. Jesus concludes, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. So you see how you can move forward by way of analogy from Ecclesiastes to the New Testament. Uh, then longitudinal themes, and maybe you want to hand out the last page at this point. Uh, number five, then, in biblical theology, longitudinal themes refers to themes that can be traced through the length of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. We can utilize this concept for preaching Christ because every major Old Testament theme leads to Christ. For example, one of the major themes in Ecclesiastes is to fear God. This theme of God's people's obligation to revere God goes back to the beginning of Israel's history and can be traced from there to God's later commands with the refrain, you shall fear your God, I am the Lord, to the Psalms, to wisdom literature, to Nehemiah after Israel's exile, to Ecclesiastes, to Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in health. So that's tracing longitudinal themes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then on page 9, I have two more New Testament references. Look in the... New Testament for quotations or allusions to your preaching text. Unfortunately, the New Testament quotes or alludes to verses in Ecclesiastes only 12 times. And I get these from the Greek New Testament 1993 edition. But you can also check concordances, cross-reference Bibles, commentaries, and the treasury of scripture knowledge on Libronics or PC Study Bible. Uh, that will give you, get you to more analogies and more New Testament references that you may be able to use besides the ones that are clearly quotations. Uh, I would use New Testament references especially to support the other six ways. 
And then finally, contrast. Uh, you may not use that too often. Here, you, you will more with Leviticus, for example. But because of the progression in redemptive history and the history of Revelation, the message for the contemporary church may be quite different from the teacher's original message for Israel. For example, the teacher stresses